Good morning, Christ Church. Uh, it's good to be with you again, and uh, it's good to be going back through the book of Acts. Uh, um, this series, the more I get into the book, I just really love this book. Um, it really speaks to the faithfulness of God. So powerful. And so this morning, as we get back into the book of Acts, we here encounter Acts chapter 12, which casts, thank you, you read for us so well. Uh, that was wonderful. And Acts 12 here marks the, the conclusion. It's this concluding part of the first half of the book that Luke here is writing, recounting the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, all the way eventually as he will end his account in Rome, which for them would have marked the end of the world. This is the center of everything. This is the end of it all. This represents all the earth there in Rome. And throughout this first half of the book, Luke has been documenting God's work through the church, bearing witness to the good news about Jesus. And the result has been twofold. First, we see the kingdom of God breaking into this old and broken world by means of people radically transformed, radically transformed when they embrace the good news about Jesus. This is enabling people, like we saw in Acts 2 and Acts 4, having all things in common. And indeed, this new people of God, the church, in many ways is displacing the temple as the presence of God on earth, where the presence of God is housed. Because this is now where the poor are being fed. This is where needs are being met. That's the first result that we see. The second is that we see the power holders of this present evil age lashing out against the church and what God is doing through the church's witness to Jesus. Right? We saw that early on in Acts 4 when Peter and John in Acts 3 healed this lame man. What happens? They're arrested in 4. They're brought before the ruling elders there. And for fear of the people, they release them. This happens again later on in the book. They're brought back again. They're arrested again. And then they were miraculously let out of prison. And now here, in Acts 12, we come yet again to another power holder contesting God's rule, what the church is doing, what the church is doing, bearing witness to Christ. We here encounter King Herod. And in this chapter, Luke reveals a showdown of sorts between Herod and God. And if you've ever watched an old Western TV show like Gunsmoke, now for you folks, you ought to be really proud that I know that. Um, so, you know, the secrets were passed down at some point uh, in my family, or there's these old TV stations that still run these things. No, uh, for, there's an ongoing joke for folks that don't know. When we have, we have, we pray before the service, and Alex and myself and others of our age don't know many of the references that are made to to ancient singers and songwriters uh, or TV shows. So um, I know Gunsmoke. So it, sorry, <laughs> a little off, off kilter there. Luke reveals a showdown of sorts. And it's, this is just like an old Western show like Gunsmoke. You know, each episode builds up to that climactic scene where the good guy, Dylan, is that his name? Where the good guy faces off in a shootout against a criminal, against some kind of crook. And so similarly, in the first half of Acts, Luke has been building up the tension between God and those power holders of this world. He's been building up this tension to those who are opposing God's work through the church. And so Acts chapter 12 presents this showdown between God and Herod, the king. It's really clear to make sure that we know that Herod 
thinks himself to be the king. And indeed, he was really buddy-buddy with Emperor Claudius, and Claudius gave him that title as king. Because it was originally just reserved for his great-grandfather, King Herod, we know from the Gospels. So at last, it would appear now that Herod is winning. As we enter Acts chapter 12, those who are opposing God seem to be winning. The chapter begins, James is dead. Peter is in prison and most likely awaiting a show trial and then an execution. And now Herod is triumphing. However, the chapter closes with Peter free, Herod dead, and God triumphing. The word of God increasing and multiplying throughout the world. That's what happens when God is at work. We see in this chapter the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. And of course, this is not the first time in the book of Acts that we've encountered this characteristic of God at work. It formed a significant piece of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. And we heard there Peter preach this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, let's not get mistaken, there's a lot of Jesuses walking around, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's plans. You crucified, your hostile plans, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We see this throughout Acts. As we mentioned last week, God is the center of gravity. Not just in Acts 11, but here again in Acts 12 and throughout the book, God is the center of gravity. He is the one planting and growing churches, even though all the while his work is contested, contested by control-craven religious leaders that we see in Acts 4 and 5 and 6, in bloodthirsty, riotous crowds that murder and martyr Stephen in Acts 7, and by power-hungry political leaders, as we encounter here in Herod. Nevertheless, God's glorious power overthrows hostile human plans and establishes his own in their place. This is what's going on at a really large level, not only in the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is participating in this kind of larger narrative thread throughout the book. But how does this showdown between God and fallen human powers like Herod play out on the ground? What does it look like for the church to be wrapped up and caught up into the midst of this ongoing, you could say, conflict as God's kingdom is spreading from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth? And more to the point, if God is at work in the church to overthrow hostile human plans and establish his own in their place, then how does the church draw upon God's power to be at work, to do this, to spread the good news of Jesus? If God is at work in the church to overthrow hostile human plans and establish his own in, in their place, then how does the church draw down upon God's power to do this work? to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts 12, Luke portrays two fundamental ways that we, as the church, draw down upon God's power or participate with God in this work 
in this kingdom work in the world. We live cruciform lives, and we'll explain that in just a minute. We live cruciform lives, and we earnestly pray. We live cruciform lives, and we earnestly pray. This is how we draw down upon God's power in the midst of a world where there is hostile intent towards the gospel and God and God's people who are proclaiming that good news. So first, we draw down upon God's power when we live cruciform lives. In Acts chapter 12, James and Peter embody, they embody cruciform lives. That is, lives that conform to the crucified Christ. That's what we mean by cruciform. Lives that conform to the crucified Christ. Conforming one's life to the crucified Christ means that the pattern of Christ's life defines and permeates every aspect of our lives, every relationship. And this cruciform pattern of life stands in stark contrast to the patterns of life that hostile human plans rely upon to accomplish them. Brute force, violence, we see that on display here with Herod. Manipulation and seduction, we see that on display. If you think back to even Herod's father, how the young woman, or even his wife, manipulated him to get things done, to kill John the Baptist. Brute force and violence, manipulation and seduction, status and wealth. These are the common ways that power is employed in our world to get things done. And this is what Jesus teaches his disciples over and over again in the Gospels to prepare themselves for his crucifixion, to live a different way of life. See, in contrast, God demonstrates his power not through status or wealth, not through brute force or violence, not through manipulation or seduction. God demonstrates his power through what appears to be utter human weakness, like a king crucified. For everyone else in the world, that meant you lost. Really clearly so, right? He gave up his ghost, he breathed his last, he died, and they mocked him along the way. This indeed was the king of the Jews. Gave him a, corn, uh, corn, a crown of thorns. So Jesus, knowing that this is a hard pill to swallow, this way of life that God calls us to, in contrast to the way of things in our world, he teaches them, he prepares them in the Gospels for this. And he prepared James and Peter and John, along with the other disciples, for this way of life. And one passage that stands out in particular is Acts, for, in light of Acts chapter 12 is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. You may remember this episode. Mark recounts, and James and John, this is James that we've encountered here in Acts 12, who was martyred by Herod. James and John, these are the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> Those guys didn't have any problem saying something like that, which is kind of wild. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. I admire them for their boldness. Um, but these are, <laughs> if they would have known what they're really signing up for, uh, they might have spoke differently. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. That means his death, okay? James, 
literally tasted death like Jesus did. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, you know, these other disciples that are around, they began to be indignant at James and John. You can imagine what that would have been like. You want to be, whoa, 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 whoa. That means you want to control us. <laughs> you want to be at his right and his left. You want to be the center of power in God's kingdom when the Messiah is over all things. And so they become indignant. And then Jesus sees this as an opportunity to get to the punchline. And Jesus called them. They call, he called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. There's a different way of life. There's a different pattern of life that we will know fully at the end of the Gospels is defined and shaped by the cross. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross, sacrifice, it defines the life that God calls us to as the people of God. We are indeed baptized into this way of life, which we will be doing at 11 o'clock service for Rosemary. Which, if you think about it, for parents is a really frightful thing. Because the cross, the baptismal waters come and they bid us come and die. This is the way of life. This is the cruciform pattern of life that all followers of Jesus are not only called to live, but are indeed baptized and empowered by the Spirit of God to live out in this world. And James, along with his brother John, wanted to be powerful. Like Herod, you could say. They wanted to be powerful. They wanted to be somebody in God's kingdom. They wanted positions of influence and control. And as Jesus told them, they had no idea what that really meant. They had no idea what, they were really in, that what was really in store for them. They didn't know or couldn't know what lay ahead of them. And Jesus confronted their misconceptions about what is true power, power to bring about true life and flourishing, not only for oneself, but for those around you, for the world. True power comes from God at work in one who lives his or her life in conformity to the life of Jesus. This is true power. This is how you draw down upon the power of God. You live your life in conformity to the life of Jesus, the same pattern of life. And this Jesus is the one who humbled himself, who took on human flesh, becoming a servant, and not only that, died a criminal's death, cursed a cursed death upon a tree. And we see that pattern of life, the narrative kind of uh, plot of that life, laid out most clearly in, in Philippians chapter 2. This is the same mind of Christ. Have this mind of Christ in yourselves that Christ, that Christ had. Who though God... Who, though is equal with God, did not consider that equality something to be taken advantage of for his own good, his own sake, but humbled himself, becoming human, not only just becoming human, not a powerful human king, but becoming a lowly servant. And not only a lowly servant, even dipping low, low, more lowly and becoming a criminal, being crucified, 
A cursed death upon a tree. This is the narrative. This is the plot that defines our lives as Christians. This is indeed what we are baptized into. I baptize you in the name of Jesus into his death and resurrection. I default back to the old, the Baptist way of baptizing. Baptize you in the name of Jesus, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I baptize you into his death and raise you up into his glorious life and resurrection. That narrative of Jesus is what we are all baptized into. That life defines us. True power, true power then has been radically redefined in the cross. True power is a life conformed to the cross of Christ. And this power does not work for us. Our desires for it. like We can't manipulate this into our own will. That's, that's what defines human power. God's power doesn't work for us in our ways. It works to bring about God's plans. It works to bring about God's plan so that the word of God increases and multiplies in this world through lives that proclaim the good news about Jesus. You see, a cruciform life is one that identifies itself so thoroughly with Jesus. It is one that identifies itself so thoroughly with Jesus that Jesus becomes visible and tangible in our lives. We use that phrase often that we would become the hands and the feet of Jesus. But a cruciform life indeed marks us out as a people who do become the hands and the feet of Jesus. Living his life in varied and new circumstances that we encounter each day. But living his life, the very pattern of it out. And the very living of that cruciform life bears witness to the good news of Jesus. That there's a different way in this world. There's a way that doesn't manipulate. There's a way that doesn't use violence. There's a way that brings about life and flourishing and utter, utter, utter submission to God. And this is, what, this is what baptism is all about. God at work through the Spirit to bring our lives in alignment with the life of Jesus. That's what we're doing. That's what the Christian life is about. The Spirit continuing that work to bring our lives in alignment with the life of Jesus. And this is why at every baptism, those being baptized, or the parents or godparents speaking on behalf of the child, renounce the devil, the world, and the flesh. And then they also don't just use, don't just want to renounce things. We're for something. We affirm. We turn to Jesus, confessing him as Lord. We receive the faith that's given to us, that's passed down to us in the Holy Scriptures, and we commit to obey God's law. We commit to live out this cruciform life. And, you know, living a cruciform life doesn't mean that each one of us will be or should be martyred, though that has always been a possibility for the church and for God's people who bear witness to his good news, right? Because we live in a hostile world, a contested, on contested ground. But rather, living a cruciform life means that we come and die to ourselves. We die to our desires for control and power for status and wealth, we die to this fallen world and to our broken and twisted desires within it. And sometimes that may lead us in the cause of Christ to martyrdom, but it also leads us to just little everyday acts where we die. Die to ourselves, die to twisted desires, redirect those desires towards God, make God's desires our desires, and the Spirit is always at work to do this within us. Living a cruciform life means that at the center of our lives, 
At the center of every relationship, every endeavor, every pursuit stands the cross of Christ. It is the defining feature in all that we do. Do you want to draw down upon the power of God in your marriage or your other relationships to bring reconciliation, restoration, and new life or to deepen your bonds, your relationships? Do you want to draw down on the power of God to live as a faithful servant in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in this city? Do we want to do that? I think we do. I know we do. Then at the center of each of these domains of life and at the center of each of these relationships must stand the cross of Christ. It has to. Otherwise, we don't draw down upon the power of God because we're not living out the life that God has equipped us and empowered us to live. And this truth is beautifully captured in the colic, uh, the prayer used on Fridays at morning prayer. Almighty God, whose most dear son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And we can say amen to that. You see, in his sovereign grace, God responds to our obedience and faithfulness to spread the new life of his coming kingdom when we submit to the way of life, the cruciform way of life that his Holy Spirit empowers us to live. We draw down upon God's power when we live a cruciform life. We see that. Peter, James, they're living that out. The church is living that out here in Acts chapter 12. But second, we draw down upon God's power when we earnestly pray to God. Listen to Acts 12 verse 5. But Peter was kept in prison But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What is earnest prayer? There is so much that we could say about earnest prayer or prayer here. There's just one thing I really want to emphasize here. Excuse me. There's one thing I want to emphasize in this passage concerning earnest prayer. Earnest prayer, and this is it. Earnest prayer speaks to God. It addresses God. It seeks God. When the situation you're experiencing and everything going on around you seems to speak against him. Earnest prayer constantly seeks God, addresses God, speaks to God when the situation you're experiencing speaks against him. We have every reason to believe that the church also prayed earnestly to God for James' release. We have every reason to believe that they were gathering together and praying to God throughout the night for James to be released as well. Yet God does not deliver James from being martyred by Herod. Luke gives us no reason why the church's prayer for James' release is not answered and their prayer for Peter is. And when Peter's, when Peter's in prison, you can just imagine James has just been killed. He's one of the three, the central core three of the twelve. This situation speaks against God. Does he really answer our prayers? You know, earlier in in Acts, just a few years early, he released Peter and John twice. But these prayers seem to have fallen on deaf ears. Earnest prayer continues 
constantly and earnestly addressing God even when the situation seems to speak against God. In the Old Testament, the laments do the same thing. You read the book of Lamentations, there's every reason for someone to doubt God or to be angry at God, and indeed, the author is. Yet, that doesn't stop that person from addressing his anger, his doubts, and his pains to God. That's earnest prayer, a prayer, a person, a praying that consistently and constantly addresses God when everything seems to speak against him. After James is killed, it would have been really easy to begin to blame God for not answering their prayer. It would have been easy to perceive this whole experience as one that speaks against God, as one who listens or as one who is powerful to save. It would have been easy here to simply not pray. Why bother? God didn't deliver James. Why would he deliver Peter? I mean, you, these are, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm off in left field here. I think these are the kind of normal ways that we would, we would encounter something like this. And these folks that we're looking at, they're reading this church here, they're just like you and I. They've had the same kind of question marks, the same kind of doubts in their lives. Yet, earnest prayer well, these folks embodied here in Acts 12, earnest prayer reaches out to God when everything speaks against him and his power. How can it do this? Earnest prayer can do this because it's rooted deeply in an understanding that God is the sovereign Lord revealed in Scripture. We know this from the way the church prayed. We see a prayer of theirs in Acts 4 when when Peter and John are in prison there, and they're just released, they come back, and they go to their friends, and then they pray. And this is how they pray, Sovereign Lord. And they recount Scripture in their prayer. Earnest prayer is rooted deeply in an understanding that, the, that God is the Sovereign Lord revealed in Scripture. This is exactly how the church addressed God in their prayer in Acts 4. And no doubt the church prayed similarly here. The earnestness, right? the confidence of their praying did not arise from them feeling or being in that moment more devout. Earnestness of prayer does not depend upon your devout standing. But rather it arose because they were rooting themselves firmly within the ancient tradition of Scripture. And this gave them perspective. It caught their lives up into a larger story that God is doing when he's at work in this world. They started their prayer by invoking God as a sovereign creator of heaven, earth, the sea, and everything else. The God, in other words, of the Old Testament. The God who could be appealed to. You can come to this God. You could appeal to him for everything that takes place in his domains, and that is everything. They knew that. They had that rich tradition of the laments that could come to God. Not run away from him, but actually come to him with the worst of experiences. The present situation then is placed firmly on the map of the scriptural story. And as a result, the strong theological point that even the apparently disastrous things that took place to Jesus... As he was going to the cross, or as James was martyred here by the sword, these were not outside of God's will, broadly understood, his sovereign will. The wickedness of rulers is held in check 
by and contained within the overall purpose of God who makes even human wrath turn to his praise. And that's what happens at the end of Acts 12. Human wrath, even though it hurts and there was loss and there was pain in the, in the martyrdom of James, it was turned to the praise of God. Thus, all that takes place in Acts chapter 12 takes place so that the word of God may increase and multiply. That's the big picture. That's that overall thing that is so hard to work out in the day-to-day. To see ourselves as caught up into this over, this larger overarching story. It's hard to gain that big God-sized perspective when what's happening right now is loss and pain, and sorrow. Yet, even though they experienced it just like we would, they fell back on a deep rootedness into the scriptural story of God at work as the creator, as the redeemer, as the savior. It didn't answer all their questions, but it enabled them to address God nonetheless. They didn't run. They knew God could take it. They knew God could still answer prayer. Thus, all that takes place in Acts 12 takes place so that the word of God may increase and multiply. Verse 24, James is martyred, Peter is freed, so that the hearts, so that hearts of people will turn to God and people embrace the good news about Jesus and be transformed. All this takes place so that the kingdom of God may advance. And life, new resurrection of life, may burst even more into a world held enslaved to death through sin. Now, lest we think that these early church folks were some group of uber-spiritual people, just far more devout than we could ever hope to be, Luke recounts in a fairly comical way their response to God freeing Peter. And Peter, like Peter can't believe it. He's like, this is ridiculous. I mean, he's outside of the, he's outside of prison. And he's kind of like, wakes up and like, oh, I'm free. Like, this wasn't going on before. Like, you didn't have no, you had no idea this was happening. And so Luke recounts this kind of comical way. And then, then when Peter gets there, he's knocking at the door. You know, hey, let me in at this gate. And Rhoda, the servant girl, comes and she's like, sounds like Peter. And she doesn't even open the gate. She runs back and tells everyone who's praying for Peter's release. And what do they do? What's their response? Does it sound like really believing folks here? (laughs) Trusting that God would deliver Peter? No, they're like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And she's like, no, really. Peter's there. (laughs) Trust me. And they're like, okay, maybe he is. Maybe Maybe he's already dead. And his guardian angel is at the door. They don't even believe it. And Luke, Luke is a master storyteller. He knows that this stuff is difficult. He doesn't want to uplift these people as being holier than thou. They're normal folks like you. They have their doubts. <laughs> no, <laughs> this didn't happen, Rhoda. What are you talking about? And finally, I can imagine she's just dragging someone to the front door. They open the door, and there's Peter. And then they erupt in joy. And Peter's like, calm down. I don't want to go back to jail, you know. <laughs> And so these are normal folks. These are normal folks. You see, these are ordinary folks, like you and me, who are not by nature heroes or heroines of the faith, but they're muddled. They're half-believing. 
faith one minute, doubt the next type of people. That's what most of us are. Yet, what these folks are not by nature, they are by grace. By God's grace, they are made saints and martyrs. By God's grace, they are made heroes and heroines, despite their natural flaws. Despite their failures. Despite their doubts and fears. That's the beauty of God's grace. Because you remember, what God is doing in this story isn't contingent upon these folks. He's doing this all along the way. Even when they're not even recognizing that he's doing it. Even when they don't even think he's capable of doing it in this moment. That what he does is just beyond the pale. God is at work. It doesn't depend upon them. Yet God, by his grace, draws them up into what he is doing, despite their doubts and fears, despite their failures, and he uses them. He empowers them to live cruciform lives and to pray earnestly to him for his will to be done in this world, even in the midst of sorrow and pain and loss. And the result? God blesses this. Even in its shortcomings, he blesses this. His word increases and multiplies. And we know by now this is kind of stock language for saying more and more people came into the kingdom of God. More were added to their number. More were added to the Lord. His word increased and multiplied and spread. Christ Church. I know we want to see God at work here. I know we want to see the kingdom of God spread right here in Winston-Salem. Wherever we live, whether it's on Ardmore Manor where I live or it's the street that you live, we want to see the word of God spread and increase and multiply. You may not be able to do it perfectly, I will not be able to do it perfectly, but by God's grace, we can live cruciform lives and we can pray earnestly and look and sit back and look at the wonderful, beautiful ways that God will work through us right here. May God give us the grace that we need to do this, to live this way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.